you can support Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories at Patreon.com. Patreon.com slash Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories for five or ten bucks a month. Get extra content, including uh, the newly released Best of, or, well, our very favorite music of 2023. Yes, that episode of the show is for Patreon only. If you support the show, we'll let you uh, grab that episode now. Go download that and all of the other stuff we've put up there for our Patreon supporters, including weekly newsletters and tons of top five and playlist episodes and, and outtakes and a whole bunch of other stuff. Check us out, patreon.com slash bedtime stories. You deserve it. <laughs> yeah, now, uh, let's do the show. Don't go to sleep, motherfucker. Don't go to sleep. And do me a favor. Don't disturb my friend. He's dead tired. Well, what the hell are you saying, Doss? You bruised half your body sleeping. I, I sleep pretty hard. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Hey, it's Brian. And hey, it is Murdoch. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Thanks for joining the show, everybody. You know where to get involved. You send us an email. It's wearethestoryguys at gmail.com. That's what Anthony did. He wrote the show to say, hey, I'm a big fan. And he also wanted to ask about a particular sample on the Beastie Boys Check Your Head record. Let, let me let me play this and see if you know uh, if this rings any bells. All right, get off the bus. You're wild, man. Wild. You're wild, man. You're wild. I previously did not know, and it was just a cool part of that little song. It's Mark on the Bus, right? Yeah, it's Mark, like song that, Mark on the Bus yeah. from Check Your Head. Yeah. So the short answer to what that sample is at the end of Mark on the Bus is banter that is being spewed on stage by a guy who uses a stage name, Kronos. And he's been right. performing in a band called Venom. That has existed longer than I have been alive and almost as long as you've been alive. 45 years and counting. And and I'm sure that you and I had a very different experience with Venom. Uh-huh. I remember getting my first Venom cassette, which you never have owned by that artist, <laughs> and knowing very clearly that this is music that I should not be listening to as a preteen. <laughs> that should have been that should have been stopped immediately from my parents to be listening to, well, to Venom. You bring it, up you bring up a good yeah. point, right? Like so we've established the straightforward answer, but this is one of those answers that really leads to a lot more questions like A, who the hell is Kronos? Who's Kronos? B, who the hell is Venom? Uh why does Kronos sound like that? When was this recorded? And what made it legendary enough to be included as a sample on a Beastie Boys record? Those are the mysteries that we want to unravel today. And from 50,000 feet, Venom showed up during the new wave of British heavy metal in the late 70s that Metallica is made famous by letting everybody into that rearview mirror of right, the bands right, right, they right. were influenced by. And Venom actually came out of three other bands who have three great names, Guillotine, <laughs> Oberon, and Dwarf Star. I have a feeling you would have listened to all three of those bands at some point in your Def life. Definitely guillotine. The guy we call Kronos, not to be confused with the awful software that tells you like you put in your pay stuff. His given name is Conrad Lant. Hey, a lot of people use, We worked for a company that used Kronos, didn't we? I totally forgot about lot, that. Sorry. Lots lots of people, lots of companies use Kronos. Like it wasn't us in that stupid scenario that we had. Um, and he actually isn't in the isn't it, by the way his name's conrad lant so he's not really chrono was not That's on his not birth his, certificate as chrono right. imagine that thank thank goodness he actually isn't in the earliest 
version of the band, but he joins pretty early on and inherits roles. So he takes over bass playing because the bass player leaves. And when the vocalist leaves, he becomes the, the singer. And so by the eighties, he's fronting a just, they're just three piece. Okay. So you said that you should not have been listening to this as a preteen, but will you describe the band's vibe? Like give people sort of, uh, you know, who've never heard of this band uh, a taste. Um, I'll just give song titles. I don't, <laughs> I mean, okay. Give so it a I, shot. like imagine, imagine being an influence of Slayer. Yeah. Yeah. So they, they have a record called, uh, an 81. So this is like, kind of before Slayer, called In League with Satan. And here are uh, song titles. <laughs> the title track, of course, In League with Satan, Welcome to Hell, Poison, Witching Hour, 1,000 Days of Sodom. Ah, that and, one I know from my bi- my biblical past. I, I know what Sodom means. <laughs> yeah. And to hell and back. So they love the yeah. devil. Is that what we're saying here? I'm going to go ahead and say not really, but sort of. Here's a great quote from Kronos. I love saying that. Here's a quote from Kronos. Um, he said this to The Guardian in 2008. Quote, I've always, be inter- I've always been interested in Satanism, but we're entertainers. And we use subjects like Satanism and paganism to entertain people like horror movies do. Listening to a Venom album is the same thing as watching an Evil Dead movie. I don't go around murdering virgins in my in virgins in my spare time. It's frustrating when people can't make that distinction. I mean, David Bowie was not actually from Mars, is he right? But we were always being misquoted in the press. So first, did you see the new Evil Dead movie? You don't watch near as many movies as I do. The Evil Dead Rises. But I saw the new Evil Dead. It's yes. so good, man. It's so like I will say I was crawling up and we were in the very back row of the theater, me and my buddy Shane, who we love to see horror movies together, and I was crawling up the back wall of the theater literally. Like I was standing on my seat, putting my feet against the wall. <laughs> like it was heebie jeebie. Oh god, it was awful and fantastic. It was it was really, really well done. If you like horror movies at all, highly recommend that. But okay, yeah. back to Kronos. In the truest sense of the word. They are an act, is what you're saying. What that quote says to me is, this yeah. is not genuine, but it's it's something that they put on. Absolutely. They are acting. Like in the 70s, when kids like me, wasn't, they weren't really sure if KISS were really humans. <laughs> that was an act. Um, uh, it's theater, at least to some extent, and that is going to be important to remember as we talk about this story. Yeah, okay, so... That's a great place to jump in because the story really is about contrast. More specifically, it's about who else is on the bill with Venom on a very particular night. The night where the show will be recorded and that sample will be put to wax and will end up on a Beastie Boys record. And that particular night in question is April 2nd of 1986. And the particular venue in question is City Gardens in Trenton, New Jersey. Legendary music spot. We'll kind of get into that here in a minute. And there's a must-see documentary about City Gardens called Riot on the Dance Floor. Do not miss that thing. If you don't know where to get that or you haven't gotten to that yet, the quick way to learn a lot about this place is hit the show notes. There's a PDF 
it runs down the history of this place very quickly. And it's amazing stuff. But to, to your point, Murdoch, there's like a lot of stuff about this venue. It started as a car dealership. In 76, it becomes an after-hours club. A couple of years later after that, it becomes a blues club briefly. And then sometime in 79, it becomes City Gardens. And one thing that in popular culture of people that maybe weren't into the bands, John Stewart was a bartender there from 84 to 87, <laughs> which means... He might have been in the room. Jo- John Stewart might have been in the room with what we are about to discuss today. So City Gardens closes when? 94? Four. Yeah, okay. So 15 years of existence, basically. Here are a few of the acts who are going to come through in that relatively short period of time. Billy Idol, Guar, Danzig, Iggy Pop, De La Soul, Jane's Addiction, Green Day, Joan Jett, New Order, Megadeth. I'm just scratching the surface. But also on the list, on this night in April of 86, Venom with... Henry Rollins era, Black Flag. Gibby, gibby, gibby. <laughs> I need some more. Gibby, gibby, gibby. Black oh, Flag. Can I give the rundown here? Give please, about Black Flag. Please give. Man, yeah. If you don't know anything about Black Flag, I mean, you've seen a Black Flag T-shirt. If you're listening to a podcast called Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories, you sort of know who Black Flag is. But yes, Murdoch, please get us all up to speed. Just like the Venom cassette, I wish that my parents had had some wherewithal to understand that I shouldn't have had the t- the Black Flag. Slip it in t-shirt. <laughs> if you don't know what that is, Google search. How old were you when you um, were wearing the slip it in t-shirt to school? <laughs> uh, 16, 17. Right. I didn't well, wear it to that's, school. That's better than like being very, 11. Yeah, okay. 16, 17. Very, that's very much. But still, right? Okay, I'm not sure if folks realize this, but Keith Morris, who sings for Black Flag initially, he's not in the band for very long. No, he's in there for isn't. three years. They start... Right. Right, 76 to 79, he leaves and starts the Circle Jerks, which he's still in now. They're doing, three of their members are still um, in the band, except they've got a different drummer, uh, Joey Santiago. You're more more of a Circle Jerks guy than a Black Flag guy, right? Yeah, I I am, for sure. Also, when I saw the Bronx two summers ago, and you just didn't go for some reason, Joey Santiago was playing drums on that tour. Yeah, and Joey Santiago... He played drums and dancing, but that's not what we're really here to talk about. So um, he's also in a band called Off. Uh, oh, to, yeah. Uh, Keith Morris is. Yeah. But after he leaves Black Flag, Greg Ginn and the band just start recruiting fans of the band. To this this is right. the most punk rock thing about this band. Right. So first, there is this dude named Ron Reyes. And then there's Des Cadena, who you probably are more familiar with if you know much about Black Flag. And with Des, they start heavily touring. And, and basically, Des just blows out his voice because he has no idea what he's doing because he's just yelling. Uh, you know, there's like no vocal training for being in Black Flag. So it, he doesn't want to leave yeah. the band, but he doesn't want to keep singing. And meanwhile, Henry Rollins, this kid at this point, is in this band called SOA. You should check out, too. He connects with Black Flag when they're on the East Coast, and Henry is asking them at a show to play Clocked In, and their response is, sure, if you will sing it. And he is decent enough that they basically ask him to audition to be the lead singer based on this moment in time. I believe there is a piece from one of his books or an interview or something in the show notes where he tells this whole story. It's really it's really good. We won't go deep into it, but yeah. And then all of a sudden he's in this band that he's admired, which is crazy. The next like half dozen years are just full of frustration for this freaking band, though. We could do a lot of episodes about the member changes and the record label wars, the out and out 
bullshit that just plague Black Flag and keep them from really being a commercial success, which it's argued to argue, you know, arguable if like they ever wanted to be a commercial success, but they had a lot of opportunities to sort of be bigger and do more than they did, but they just keep hitting all these roadblocks between 81 and 86. But know this, this band officially breaks up on June 27 of 1986. Our main story happens on April 2nd, 1986 <laughs> so you might be able to deduce that the group is not really in the best shape here since they're going to break up two months later uh, there's this excellent greg in quote where he says something akin to the idea that once henry rollins joined the band quote we couldn't do songs with a sense of humor anymore and i <laughs> bring that up because hey, it makes me laugh like it does you but also it, it just illustrates what an intense figure Henry Rollins is. If for some reason you have missed him in pop culture for the last 40 years, he's intense in the good days. So imagine in the bad days how intense he probably is. This is a guy who performs in shorts only at this point and constantly confronts the crowd. Uh, you know, he fights crowd members. This is sort of the bit when they start. And the vibe is different than the Hail Satan machismo right that you are going to find at your typical venom show it's a very different vibe one of the first like rock and roll gifts i saw that that has been living in my head since the moment i saw it is this maybe 30 seconds where henry rollins is kind of like toying around with this guy in the front row like he's a cat just kind of like messing with his heads <laughs> and then he closed fist just punches the guy in the head in the face and it's like oh um, I didn't know that that's something that Henry Rollins does, but apparently he did. It, it's, back, it's violent, and it's not really acting. Like, he's not no, fake punching him. You know what I mean? Again, just to draw this comparison or contrast between these two acts. Yeah, yeah. If you girls want to get kissed, meet us in the ladies' room. There's none of that garbage. <laughs> he's actually punching people in the face. So, back to our story. How did Black Flag and Venom end up on the same bill at the first place at City Gardens? Okay, this is a great question. And so when I first ran across the story, and when, when I started digging, when we got the letter, this was where I got stuck. I was like, I don't understand why this happened in the first place. So I went digging, and it's it was hard for me to figure this out. But I did find enough intel that makes me think this is the deal. Black Flag, I think, had the night off if, for whatever they were doing, if they were touring in the area or whatever. But through some connection to City Gardens... The venue was looking for a PA for the Venom show. And they said, hey, can we rent your PA from you? And if you'll rent it to us, if you want to play, you can play. We'll just give you an opening slot and we'll pay you as the opener. So we'll pay you twice if you will do this. And so, I mean, these are punk rock guys who don't make money. I mean, this is the other thing. If you read about this period of black, like no money is made, like not really at all. And so... They can do nothing and take a little bit of money, or they can do 45 minutes of what they do and make twice the money, so they decide to take the gig. And if you want to get totally distracted by thrash metal history, also on this bill is Overkill. Right. Overkill was from Jersey. They actually got together and started as a band in 1980, and they are called, There's sometimes they were called the Motorhead of Thrash Metal. And right, right. Dan, Dan Spitz, who is in Anthrax and Nuclear Assault, he was in Overkill. And if you want to know if these guys have slowed down or got mellow, last year they put out an LP called Scorched. 
and just take a listen to it. You may or may not be into it, but um, you know, it doesn't sound like the black album or load or reload at all. There's some double bass stuff that just sounds like it's out of control super fast. So they were on this bill too. So black. So it's, I think it's overkill first black flag and then venom gets the headline. So as we've pointed out, I, I don't believe that black flag were at their most open and optimistic at this point in their career. And I think they find it pretty funny that they're going to share the stage with Venom. So this becomes a little bit of a, a, an in-joke in the band. Oh my God, we're going to play with Venom. Because this stuff Venom does is ridiculous theatrical rock. And it's a punchline to them because they are authentic, I will punch you in the right. face, uh, punk rockers. And, and it's this. what Venom does is sort of what Black Flag rails against on the daily. They're feeling antagonistic before Venom ever gets to the venue. And then Venom doesn't get to the venue. Big, important thing to point out. They've missed a flight or late driving there. However it went, there was, you know, so you, so you know you, there's a delay that now makes the antagonism even a little worse. And Henry Rollins is planning on being a dick from the get-go. When Black Flag comes on stage themselves, they start yelling things about healing Satan. Like, you know, this is like a bit. They're just like doing the Venom bit as a funny thing. And they're mocking the whole Venom act from the very beginning. And we know their headspace at the time because Henry had a tour diary and he published it in the 90s. And um, here, Brian, there's read an account from that about that show from Henry. Oh, yeah. Okay. Played that show with Venom last night. I thought we played real good. When I came out on stage, I did some Satan raps and shit. The best one was give me an S, give me an A, etc. What does that spell? Satan. It was hot. The Satan. Cr- the crowd was into it. I said, hail Satan, party hardy, and surf naked. Hail Satan. We dedicated a few numbers to Satan and had a wicked good time. And here is more where you can hear his frustration. Venom took almost an hour to get on stage. They had roadies tuning the guitars. And then they hit their stage, and they were hilarious like Spinal Tap Hilarious. Their drummer had a guy that held a fan next to him that kept him high and dry and made his hair blow the entire time. (laughs) So this sort of ornery behavior, this egging on this band that is clearly from a totally different place, it really only works if you have a partner in crime, right? So if I'm doing this solo, not as fun. If Murdoch and I are, are poking fun and we have each other as an audience, it's more fun. That partner for Henry Rollins this night and for most nights around this time is his best friend, who was working as a roadie for Black Flag at this point, a guy named Joe Cole. And Joe also was keeping a tour diary, and here's uh, his take from the show, too. Quote, Tonight's show with Venom was like living Spinal Tap for real. They play black metal, satanic rock stars! Exclamation point. They acted like they were playing Madison Square Garden. Their drummer, Abaddon, which yeah, I don't think is yeah. correct, uh, I don't know, but that's uh, a, a, that's a Satan central term, Abaddon or something. It's like I think it's connected to Satan, so I'm sure it's a stage name. Hail Satan had a drum roadie <laughs> by his drum set holding a fan on him so that his hair looked like it was blowing in the winds of hell. <laughs> the guitar player, Mantis, kept playing these cheesy metal leads and then pointing out to the crowd making evil possessed grimaces to let them know he was at war with Satan. I don't know about you, Brian, but that's that's what I look like on stage. The most spinal tap of all was their bass player, Kronos. He kept telling the crowd that they were wild. Ah, ah, you guys are wild. Hey, does that sound familiar? Have we heard that? You guys are wild. 
You want to hear something that'll kick your balls off? The next song is called Love Amongst the Dead. Right? Pretty sickly. If you've got any lighters, you can take them out like this guy here. Okay, here we go. I love doing all of that. That was awesome. (laughs) Highlight of my day so far. I don't think that Kronos could even play his bass. He mostly flexed his muscles, stuck his tongue out at the crowd, and gave them the Hail Satan sign while telling them how wild they were. He was delivering the goods and was an evil rock and roll animal. Rollins, Sel, and I drew pentagrams and 666 on the palms of our hands like Richard Ramirez. Which would have been right around this time. The The Richard Ramirez stuff was happening in real time, yeah. And none of this is funny, but it's hilarious now. They flashed them at the band members so they could see that we, too, were at war with Satan. (laughs) I was over at Manta's guitar monitor flashing my pentagram, giving him the Hail Satan sign while... He was in the middle of another cheesy lead. He looked up at me, pointed, smiled, and winked. At the end of the night, we were walking around saying, Hail Satan to everyone. We are now born-again Satanists. Hail Satan has become our new greeting. What a fun night. Uh, okay, they're being assholes. Like, we should just acknowledge that. This is some, this is some real middle school bully behavior. Sure, and that's all pretty funny. And But, you know, it, it gets more middle school bully in the days after the show because we told you that joe cole is a roadie he gets access to a recording that's made of the show from the soundboard apparently and he thinks it would be really funny to let people experience venom's live show without the song he literally does the opposite of what most live recording engineers would do and he takes the songs out but he keeps the stage banter in. And now you have nearly nine minutes of Kronos yelling in his very exaggerated stage presentation, which, according to the Black Flag guys, was pretty ridiculous in context, but is definitely ridiculous out of context. Oh, we got some beer drinkers out there tonight! You know what this is? This comes from where Venom come from. It's called Newcastle Brown Ale. It knocks you on your fucking back, let me tell you. So the, the guys here tonight wouldn't give me any alcohol front stage, so uh, I brought my own. This is 86, so you have this cassette that was apparently passed around by the band amongst friends for years. And it gains enough of a reputation that almost uh, five years later... yeah. Uh, is a weird rock and roll artifact that Thurston Moore releases it as a 7-inch in 1991. Yeah, and if you don't know much about this, Thurston Moore forms two noteworthy entities around the same time in the early 80s. One of them, of course, is Sonic Youth, and the other is this record label that he calls Ecstatic Peace. And the label was always about sort of getting things out that were unheard, and and specifically avant-garde craziness. So lots of weird and or singular stuff will come out on Ecstatic Peace throughout the years. Technically, the label still exists, though it's mostly just been dormant for the last 10 years or so and putting out like two or three Thurston more releases. Right. And so they only print 300 of these seven inches, but you can still find them floating around uh, the internet if you dig through Discogs. Median price is 75 to 100 bucks. And it's presumably this seven inch that makes it to the crate of the Beastie Boys in time for inclusion on 1992's Check Your Head. Though, who knows? It could have been a bootleg, I guess. So this all begs the question, what happened to Kronos and the guys in Venom, and what did they think about all this? And the short answer is, 
that as far as the night in question, they say that Henry Rollins' version is bullshit. Yeah, so there's this podcast interview from like 2015 where Kronos goes off about this. I mean, nothing like trying to recall specifics 30 years down the road, but he says it didn't happen like Henry and Joe say it did. He says stuff that's just bizarre. And as much as I would like to be on his side, because I think when you hear this story, really the guys in Black Flag sound like dicks. Like I'm sort of on the side of Venom. Like, like guys, like let these guys be these guys and do their thing. Maybe you shouldn't have gigged with them for 45 bucks or whatever, but like, you know, come on. But Kronos makes it worse because he says stuff that there's no way it's true. Like, he says that Henry Rollins' mom called him and that she packed them lunches. Uh, quote, let me tell you the truth about that concert. Henry Rollins' mom phoned us up and told us they were the next big thing in New York and they had such a huge following, blah, 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 blah. Little did we know that they were a fucking sad little band and had no following. When we got there, they were just fucking children. They couldn't play. They had no fucking instruments. So we had to lend those guys the back line. And I do not think that's true. Because right. the whole explanation of why this show happens that makes any sense that I found is that Black Flag bring, basically brings the back line. So that, I don't think that is factual. Right. And also, if they weren't providing equipment, it probably would have been harder for Joe to get the soundboard tape of the show. But... Like it's, I I don't know if he's just like trying to talk random shit or what. It's it's a little it's a little weird. Right. He goes on to say that Henry Rollins' mom was with them at the show, and got into an argument with Venom's manager. So I did right. some research on Henry Rollins' relationship with his mother, and I don't think it's bad, but I don't think she was coming to shows in '86. Like this also seems like it's totally fiction. Quote for all of this about how he stood and watched the Venom show and couldn't stop laughing with his friends. As soon as they had finished playing, they got in their van and left. So I don't know what show he watched, but it certainly wasn't the Venom show, end quote. I, I sort of have a theory about this. I wonder if yeah. he's getting I wonder if he's getting Black Flag and Overkill confused. Like it's been know. thirty years. I wonder if Overkill left. Or even if Overkill had because they were a younger band at the time, because they would have started in the last, well, I guess six years, because they started around 80, you said. But, like, Black Flag's been around for a decade. They've been around for less than that. So I do wonder if there's some of that or if he's just straight up making stuff up. But I think the overall reaction when this interview came out in 2015 was that that Kronos is crazy. The original story makes Black Flag and Henry Rollins look like jerks, like I was saying, but Kronos trying to retell it makes him look like an idiot. So it sort of becomes a toss-up. And now there has not been much noise from Venom, Venom or Kronos for the last five years or so. But they were still considered active up until 2018. And they're a band with significant influence musically, of course. I mean, we talked about this, but, you know, they definitely influenced Kerry King and the guys in Slayer from a sound perspective. But they also inspired their stage banter as well. So you can find compilations of Slayer's stage banter. There's one in particular that was recorded across 24 shows and then edited and digitized. I'm going to play just a clip of this. For some reason in this world, skinheads, short hairs, do not get along with the metalheads. There's only one kind of music in this world, and that is fast, hard. And whether you have short hair, long hair, mustache, beard, leather and jeans, suit and tie, no matter... We are all here together till fight till death. 
You know what? No matter if you got a mustache, if you got short hair. <laughs> it's, very, it's, it's very, very good. There's also a cassette that I got, you know, from my girlfriend in Canada. Just kidding. The stranger who would, I would give him money orders and he would send me bootleg cassettes. And I had a Slayer show from the early 80s. And Slayer has a, sh- a song called Necrophiliac. And the entire stage banter about it was that he fell in love with this lady and then he had to dig her up because he had to get to her bones. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, and then everything everything he says after that up until what I'm about to say is absolutely disgusting. <laughs> and the last thing he says is, this is a song I le- for the girl I left behind. It's called Necrophilia. <laughs> and like, it's totally Venom. Like, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's, anyway, so it's funny. This is Kronos talking in the last decade. When I see Kronos, I think that I, he's like a Marvel character. It's so hard. <laughs> we were the band that was influenced by Motorhead and the Sex Pistols, but we took their sound and made something completely new out of it. We were completely new, and no one had heard anything like us. And of course, unbeknownst to us in America, there were these kids who were listening to our records and then shaping what we were doing into their own thing. Slayer would be an example of that. Totally true. And I agree without us, those bands either wouldn't exist or would sound very different from the way they do. Yeah. End quote. Yeah. I mean, and I I think that's pretty undeniable. The studio for Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories has gotten a a bit of an upgrade. We've got brand new speakers from our friends at Audio Engine. And I got to say, they're really nice. Not only are they really nice, they're also really versatile. Not only will they plug into our systems here, allow for great playback when we're editing shows and listening to songs uh, before and after recording sessions... They're also great for Bluetooth capabilities. We can move them around the house, and they've got this deep sound, deeper than the sort of audio you're used to listening to on your Bluetooth speaker in your kitchen. So they're great when we go you know, make the snacks, and then when we come in the studio, we plug them back in and, and keep the good sound going uh, for the show. If you're an audiophile like us, you are. You're listening to this show. You love rock and roll. It's going to sound really good when you upgrade your listening experience uh, with our friends from Audio Engine. And here's the really sweet thing. You can support the show and upgrade your audio all at the same time. The folks at Audio Engine willing to throw us a bone for every speaker at every piece of equipment that they sell uh, through our link in the show notes. So if you're going to check out Audio Engine, just go ahead, uh, pull open the app you have open to listen to the show, click on that link for Audio Engine. Uh, and if you purchase, once you're on that link, we get a little kickback too. But before we leave the story entirely, we'll leave Venom there. And I want to turn our attention back to the Black Flag camp. Remember Henry Rollins' roadie and best friend that we mentioned? Joe Cole. Yeah, Joe. So he's the guy who also keeps the other diary and who tapes and edits the show on that night in 1986 to create what will become the seven inch of Kronos yelling shit. And even when Black Flag breaks apart, the two remain close pals and roommates and they work on stuff together. In fact, in 1991, Henry and Joe are working on a documentary together about the struggles of homeless Southern California Vietnam vets. And they move into this neighborhood in Venice Beach specifically because it puts them close to this population of vets. But because of that, it's a fairly unsafe neighborhood in terms of crime. And also, we should mention that Joe Cole is pals with other big names that will eventually become bigger in mainstream music, namely the crew in Sonic Youth 
and the band Hole, who he actually roadies for in their early days. Now, I don't know if people know this, but we can connect these dots really quickly, right, about Hole and Sonic Youth. Because I don't think of those bands uh-huh. in the same category. But if you don't know this, Hole is basically formed because Courtney Love is obsessed with Sonic Youth. And she yeah. tries to make a band that sounds like Sonic Youth a little bit. And then she's determined, once she has this band, to get Kim Gordon to produce them. Like, that's how into this whole idea she is. So she writes a letter. This is so quaint. She writes a letter to Kim and sends it with a Hello Kitty barrette and a couple of demos of the band to try to get Kim involved. And God damn it, it works. Uh, Pretty on the inside is the name of that LP. And if you don't like Hole, you probably should pick that one up because it does not sound like what Hole it normally sounds yeah, like. Yeah, if you're thinking Celebrity Skin, Malibu Hole, this is not what you're getting. You're getting much closer to Sonic Youth. None of these songs were written by Billy Corrigan at the time. <laughs> and, now, and so remember, Thurston's label puts out that Venom uh, stage band, 7-inch. So Joe and Henry are wrapped up in this whole scene. In fact, it's actually after a whole concert on December 19th of 1991 that Henry and Joe are walking home from the Whiskey-A-Go-Go through Venice Beach, and they stop at this all-night grocery store. It's their normal stop, grab some snacks after the show. I mean, I do that. And then they make it to their doorstep, and they're immediately confronted by two armed men. And the guys ask them for cash, and... Henry and Joe cough up about 50 bucks between them. Again, nobody's making money. And that does not satisfy these thieves. Right. So the guys holding them up are annoyed, and they send Henry inside to get them more money. And they say to him, if you yell or if you scream, I'm going to blow your head off. So one guy follows Rollins. The other guy's with Joe Cole. And something happens. No one is sure what happens or some sort of scuffle. And the other guy will shoot Joe Cole in the back of the head and kill him instantly. Henry Rollins then runs out of the back of the house to safety, calls the police and sends them to the house and then is so dazed that he's sort of wandering around the streets in the middle of the night and he ends up getting picked up and arrested by police on the way to the house. So they will hold him for like eight hours and it's while he's in the back of a cop car handcuffed and sitting outside his own home that he learns that Joe Cole is dead. Yeah, and never found the guys who did it. So it happens in 91. In 1996, there's an episode of Unsolved Mysteries about this killing. Rollins will give an interview. Joe Cole's dad, Dennis, who is actually an actor you might recognize, especially if you watch a lot of like 70s television. He never became like a super huge guy, but he did a lot of work in 70s and 80s TV. And then after this happens, becomes an anti-violence activist. They give interviews on this Unsolved Mysteries episode. You can watch the whole episode in the show notes. And Rollins has a theory as to why this happens. And that is tied up in a visit they had gotten at the house a week or two before the murder happened. Yeah, so let's put this on the artistic output timeline. So if you know much about Henry Rollins, he's known for two bands, Black Flag and Rollins Band. And... Rollins is just finishing work on the third Rollins Band record at this time, and it's a record called The End of Silence. Now, End of Silence was produced by Andy Wallace, and Andy had worked on a little record called Walk This Way with Run DMC and Aerosmith with Rick Rubin just in a few years before this, right? So there's this connection between Andy Wallace and Rick Rubin. So Rick Rubin knows Henry Rollins, all of this stuff, right? It's all connected. And Rick hears that Rollins has this new record, wants to hear the new album, that these guys had been working on. Rollins says that Rick Rubin can come over to the house and listen before it gets finished and released. 
but not thinking about subtlety, which you think if you know a little bit about Rick Rubin or, you know, watch the documentaries about him or read his book, you would think maybe there is some subtlety in here somewhere, but he shows up at the house in a Rolls Royce in the middle of this really tough neighborhood. Yeah, it is interesting because after hearing this story, you have to wonder if some of that very like unassuming presence that Rick Rubin has in the way he dresses and presents himself now might be connected to this, you know? I mean, I don't know that, but I think I think you could could possibly draw that from this. There there's even real-time reference in those diaries that later get published where Henry Rollins will say that this Rolls Royce showing up in my neighborhood is going to get me in trouble. Like he he says that the day it happens or the day after it happens or something. And so this obviously had a big effect on Henry Rollins. And it'll be memorialized in, in different ways. He has a spoken word piece about it, about Joe, that's called The Story of Two Boys. And you can listen to that. That's in the show notes. And that is, it, it's a tough sit, but it's really good. And if, you, if you've never done any of the spoken word Henry Rollins stuff, I mean, he is he's a master storyteller. And that's a lot of what he does now, right? It's funny because there's a some of those Kronos quotes, uh, you, you know, Kronos goes after Henry Rollins for, for basically doing spoken word. He's like, well, he's not really a real musician anyway. Now he just reads poetry. But uh, he does do some some really good stuff. And you can, you can find tons of that on YouTube. Now, Sonic Youth also, uh, you know, deep connection with this guy. I mean, he had, he had worked with them quite a bit. And so they have two songs on Dirty. So if you know Sonic Youth's output, there's the really famous record, uh, Goo, right? Am I right on the chronology there? Goo's the one that has KRS-One on it. And right. And, and so on the Dirty record, Kim wrote a song called JC and Thurston wrote a song called 100%, both of them about Joe Cole. And so obviously one of them is his initials. 100% was released as a single, too. Um, here's a quote from Kim Gordon, quote, the senseless random act of violence against someone so full of life and innocence was mind blowing. And I hated Los Angeles for a long time after that, end quote. Yeah, 100% contains lyrics like, Quote, but can you forgive the boy who shot you in the head or should you get a gun and go and get your revenge? So pretty heavy stuff. Somehow we we started with Venom and we ended with True Crime. <laughs> and by chance, if you've never heard specifically Venom, which likely you may not have, like just poke around. Because and just imagine how much fun it would be if we were sitting around, the two of us were sitting around with you listening to a Venom record, because it'd probably be a really fun, good time. Um, <laughs> just saying. Uh, I mean, Overkill is interesting from a hi- historical music perspective, but... Maybe um, we should do that as like a Patreon episode where you and I just listen to Venom and just like f- leave the microphones on while we enjoy a Venom record. Like mystery science fiction theater three thousand, yeah. yeah. I like I like sometimes doing that. You know, uh, that is an easy way to support the show. patreoncom slash bedtime stories. Uh, five or ten bucks a month, grab bonus episodes, and you know, request things. If you if you actually want us to do that, become a Patreon member and shoot us a note. We'll we'll make it happen for you. Tons of stuff up there, including our uh, best of you know our favorites of twenty twenty three episode where we talk about music that we have really been digging, etc. You can find all that patreoncom slash bedtime stories. Of course, uh, you can always get involved in the show like our friend did today. You just send us an email. It's wearethestoryguys at gmail.com, and uh, we'll see what we can do for you. And until next time, Murdoch, what should people keep doing? Keep worshiping Satan. 
and keep <laughs> telling stories. Don't tell my dad. He'll never, he'll never let me out of the house again. Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is a Story Guys production. The show is produced and edited by Brian Eichenberger. Get more stories, hear more podcasts, and book the guys for your conference or house party at wearethestoryguys.com. Copyright Boy Have We Got Stories Productions. All rights reserved.